0: Asia Tech Podcast, voice of the Asian tech ecosystem.
1: Hello and welcome to Asia Tech Podcast. My name is Graham Brown. We are featuring some of the newest and best podcasts here in Asia on Asia Tech Podcast. joined today by Elliot Zagman, who joins us in the world of podcasting as the co-host of China Tech Investor and also a host on SUP. China, Startup China. Elliot, welcome to the show.
0: Uh, Thanks, Graham. It's great to be here.
1: Elliot, you are the co-host of China Tech Investor. Obviously, China, probably the most important hotless buzzword in Asia when it comes to the tech ecosystem. And if not the world now, there's an increasing number of people who are looking at China from the outside and trying to unpack it. Understand what's going on. It may be more understandable for those on the inside. You spent a bit of time in China yourself. So tell us about China Tech Investor. What is the story behind this podcast and why do we need it?
0: Yeah, well, I've been in and around China for much of the last decade uh, and have really focused a lot on China Tech. And I've always been very interested in it. Um, And I've also, you know, over the years started investing a lot more in stocks and have found that as a lot of these Chinese companies have IPOed, they they've gone public on a, mostly American markets. There is a, a difficulty in understanding them. In, in some ways, looking you can look at an Alibaba the same way that you would look at an Amazon or another American company. Uh, but in other ways, you know the 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 metrics and the, the way of viewing them is completely different. Um, so. My co-host and I, James Hull, he's also, he's, we're similar ages. We're both from America and we've both been in China for a long time, but we've had very different career paths in China. He's a portfolio manager. So he is very good at looking, you know, deeply into the numbers. For me, I've worked usually in HR, PR for a lot of these companies or media. So I, I know, I know the people behind the companies. I kind of know a little bit more of the gossip behind the companies, uh, more about the strategy. So uh, the two of us, really what, what we've, when we would meet together for a beer we would just kind of you know spend hours talking about like oh well, well, well what about this company what you know how do we make sense of this so we just decided well let's record this and um hopefully you know we can come to a better understanding of, of what these companies are from the perspective of an investor and we can bring our listeners along with us um, so our target audience is, you know, first of all, anyone who's interested in you know, either retail investing or you know, somebody who works for an institutional investor, uh, portfolio manager, uh, looking at Chinese tech companies, or anyone who's interested in China or Chinese, China tech. I find that, that looking at a company through the lens of an investor is very eye-opening, very illuminating, and it really allows you to kind of cut through a lot of the BS. And and look at things for how they really are. So our slogan, we we take our slogan from you know the the Deng Xiaoping era uh, reform motto of sure 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 which is to seek truth from facts. So that's what we're trying to do with these companies and, and trying to look at you know just the reality behind them and mm. you know what makes them tick and are they a good investment or not?
1: And I really love the way you've done it. Elliot And the style of China Tech Investor, for those that haven't actually listened to it, go and check it out. It's sort of very conversational. It's done in a an informal manner, even though the subject matter is quite serious. And like you said, when you started out with James over a beer and had a conversation about things you were passionate about, that has carried through that vibe in the show, whether you bring on, I think, one of your recent shows, you had John Russell on And there you go. There's a guy who's not afraid to share his opinion. And you give a platform to have that conversation in an authentic Mm. way. And, you know, you are not guys with 20, 30 years of analytical experience sharing your experience as experts in the field. You are people who are really passionate about the subject matter. And I think that counts a lot. If you were to compare that to, say, let's say the Financial Times, Mm. which obviously has occupied that space in informing retail investors for generations, Mm. they did a series of videos and podcasts and they just came across so staid, so wooden. And even though Financial Times has that brand gravitas and it has the pedigree and it has the writers and the journalists and the analysts, it didn't connect with the audience. And you know, that is what's so important now. And I'm wondering if that was a sort of conscious decision that you've made going into quite a serious subject, but in a, a very informal way, because that's the impression that you're giving the audience that, you know, this is just people who are really passionate about it. And that qualifies you in a way to be an expert in an era where you don't have to pick yourself. You say, yeah, we're going to talk about this because we really enjoy it.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I do think that, you know, I mean, you're talking about the financial times. Now, there's a legacy in in investing and in the financial services industry of, you know, you wear the suit and tie to work. You know, you, you have a very formal approach. Uh, and I think that often that can culturally lead to, I think um, sometimes people are not getting all the facts. To be honest with you, uh, I think that that you know, like, t- I, I there, there's this phrase in American politics that's like you know you tell it like it is, right? So like Trump tells it like it is. Like I, I don't think Trump tells it like it is, um, but in some ways like that 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 informal way of just saying, well, this is my, this is what I think, you know, I, I have this question, can, can I get somebody to answer it truthfully, I think is a, you know, is a way that that's how I, you know, go about life and just trying to, you know, look at it in a more kind of authentic way, cut through the BS, cut through, you know, the kind of PR spin and actually, you know, get to the substance of, of a matter. And I do think that with a lot of these podcasts and, you know, with a lot of these journalists, there's so many other interests that are involved. You know, there's, um, you know, I know with some other podcasts, maybe they're, they're, um, you know, backed by a a VC or, you know, they have these relationships behind it that make them, you know, have to kind of be uh, a little more sensitive about what they say. Um, And, you know, I I don't want we obviously you know, want to be respectful of the people behind these companies and want to be respectful of these companies. But if if something's not right, we want to call it out. Right. Uh, Otherwise, it's a disservice to investors. So that's really what we're trying to do and say that, you know, if something is 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 off, you know, this is off. This is not right. right? And, you know, and and not use the kind of language or the kind of, you know, I mean and some people might see, see it as polite you know I don't, I don't want to disrespect anybody but um, I think in sometimes sometimes this idea of you know decorum or formality causes people to not actually um, you know, call out the BS when you see it. (laughs) And that's what we like to do.
1: And that's what we as listeners want to hear. We want to hear people, I mean, as investors, we want to hear people who are brave enough. And
0: that's what investors should get too. Absolutely,
1: exactly. And, you know, uh, the problem is, I suppose, with the professional world is that people have reputations, people have careers, and therefore they have stuff that they can lose where it takes amateurs in a way to stand up and speak from the heart they may not have twenty years of experience, but you know they're just good at communicating that. And I noticed from your background, you describe yourself in a number of different ways as you know, public speaker, trainer, teacher, and so on. Like myself, when I graduated, um, when I graduated in nineteen ninety four or five, I'm giving my age away now. That you know, I went to Japan to teach English. It's what people did back then. Now, obviously, when people graduate, it's different. They possibly go to Shanghai like yourself, or go to Beijing. Shenzhen, But back then it was Japan. I went and taught English and you know, you learn to communicate facts, you learn to interact with people. And even though I'm not a professional in the teaching world, I still think of myself in some ways as a teacher. And you know, when we do this podcast together, um, I'm, you know, helping the audience understand a bit better about the guests like yourself, Elliot Zagman, that we have on the show. And I think, you know, this sort of brings up this whole point about podcasting and authority is that we live in a different world now where 20 years ago, if you were to stand up like yourself and James and say, We're gonna talk about stocks, people say, Who the hell are these guys? You know, they're just they're just guys talking about stocks. They have no authority. Yet simply standing up now is an authority in itself because, you know, you've got the chutzpah to, to stand up and actually be counted. I know we've mocked Trump on this podcast, but to tell it as it is, is, is a skill in itself, right? You know, I think that we need to get out there that anybody's doing a podcast, whether it's about stocks or whether it's about healthcare or whether it's about sport or whatever it may be that your passion is that authority comes from simply picking yourself.
0: Well, I wouldn't say I'm an authority. I'd say I just have questions. (laughs) And um, I think my co-host, James, I think does a, uh, he he has a much, I mean, I, I have a business education background. But James, I think, he's a, he's a professional portfolio manager. He is very good at looking into the financials of these companies. Um, and then a lot of our guests are, too. Um, but for me, my whole life, you know, the first time that I ever came to China 10 years ago, I also came with a teaching program. And one thing that, you know, I, I, my career has taken a lot of different uh, you know, directions, in a lot of different directions uh, along the way. But I'd say at the heart of it, there is still something very similar in that um, I really just like to learn things. I'm curious. I ask questions. I like to kind of digest what I learn uh, to recognize patterns and themes and then share what I learn. Um, So whether, you know, as a teacher, as a coach, uh, I think in PR there's a lot of that too, in journalism, which is um, a lot of what I do these days. uh, These are all, there's a similar theme among all of these things, which is, just to to have a spirit of curiosity, to try to see things as they are and not how you want them to be, um, and and then just to to be able to share what you learn with other people. Mm. I, I think that's how I that's how I like to approach life, and um, you know I think that's kind of my my core competency, I
1: guess. Yeah, that word curiosity, love it, and I love how it comes up so much in the startup world and in Asia, yeah. especially when you're dealing a lot with people who have come from the outside to Asia, which is a large percentage of um, the startup ecosystem. You know, a lot of people have come to Asia seeking better lives, seeking adventure. Um, Curiosity brought them there. It brought you here 10 years ago, and it brought me to Japan back in the 90s. I think Curiosity was the main driver. We were the kids who, if somebody said, don't look through the hole in the fence, we had to look through the hole in the fence. You know, there's a big world out there. So, what was your odyssey, Elliot? How did you come to China? Tell us a little bit about how that happened, you know, all the way from the US.
0: What brought me in the first place is I, I finished my bachelor's degree and I didn't want to just get a normal job in the States. Um, And yes, it was the curiosity that I think drew me to China in the first place. Uh, The Olympics were happening that year I came one week before the Olympics began. Uh, I saw Usain Bolt's uh, 100-meter final where he set the world record um, and he high-stepped across the finish line and that was pretty cool. And also I I studied sociology for my bachelor's degree, and so I really really liked learning about how groups of people interact with each other. And in in China, especially in 2008, in Beijing, it was, if you're interested in that kind of stuff, it was like paradise, right? It was just, it it was a, a, a social laboratory in so many ways, right? You had all these people that were, you know, the, the way, what they have experienced in their life, um, you know, the kind of social changes, the political changes, the the economic changes... Um, are just so incredible. And so everyone's stories were just fascinating, and it, it was a social experiment on, on such a large scale that you know, everything I saw it just kind of sucked me in. So uh, after going back uh, to the U.S., after you know, going to grad school, and I, I was thinking about what I wanted to do, but the, the China thing kept drawing me back. I was always so interested in it. So I went back to China, and, um, and I worked there for about uh, seven years, Uh, after that and um you know i still i don't i'm not there permanently right now but Mm. i'm still focused uh on china
1: the whole odyssey that moving from michigan to china back then back well before the olympics i'm fascinated by that because you know that Wouldn't have been easy for anybody in any part of the world because now now it's a lot easier It's a lot, you know China's de-risked in a way. It's easier for a graduate to get up and say yep I'm gonna go to China now Because you know that is what a lot of people have done, but you go back 10 years and that wasn't the done thing so those people like yourself who did that first were the pioneers the risk-takers a bit more reckless in that way I suppose in the eyes of the the mass, the, you know, the, the mainstream. So how was it like when you were talking to people around you about China? Did people get it back then? You know, cause Michigan, I can't speak authoritatively about that. You know it better than anybody else. I imagine it's a blue collar city. Um, it's got a, you know, a legacy of heavy industry. It's not on either coast of the U.S. I know that much. So it's not sort of an outward facing city in that respect. Um, What sort of looks did people give you when you started going off about China? It's like, okay, here's Elliot going off about China. Let him have his say about China and then we can get on back to normality. What was it like for you back then?
0: Well, Michigan is the north coast of the United States. So um, it's a peninsula uh, that's surrounded by the Great Lakes. There are true peninsulas that that are surrounded by the Great Lakes. So uh, they are very near. It's kind of across the lakes from Canada. Um, So uh, it... But yeah, I, I do think that I'm from West Michigan, so it's a little less blue collar. It's a, it has a more uh, kind of diverse economy, but it's not. Yeah, it, I mean, it's not New York City, that's for sure. Um, so it's a beautiful place to be from. Uh, it is. It's you know, Lake. We, we were. I grew up a 45-minute drive from Lake Michigan. Um, it's a. It's a gorgeous place, especially in the summer. Um, but yeah, it's not the most diverse place, uh, and it's not the most outwardly focused place. But I've always been weird. Uh, so gr- growing up, I I didn't I had you know I had good friends, especially in in high school. Uh, but I never really you know everyone you know would would go to church on Sunday. I was never a really big uh, you know religious guy. Um, I, I was always very curious about the rest of the world. Not everyone else was really curious about the rest of the world. A lot of people, you know, they focused on, you know, working at, you know, local businesses. I, I wasn't really into that. Um, so I was always a little weird um, compared to, you know, how, how you know, the people I went to school with back home. So I was always talking about the stuff that they didn't care about. Uh, so when yeah. I decided to go to China, they're like, oh, yeah, of course you're going to go yeah, to China. That makes sense, so, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, it's a great place to be from. I'm very, I'm very happy to be from there. But I think I'd get way, I'd get bored very, very easily if I lived there full time.
1: One thing I've discovered, and curious about how this has sort of panned out for you in your work and your travels and podcasting as well, is that we talk about weird today as almost a positive. You know, Seth Godin, the author, talks about celebrating your weird. And, you know, go back a generation and being weird was, uh, you know, it was a liability. It was in the pejorative that they talked about being weird, not like it is today. You know, if you're an outlier, you are a risk to society. Yet, if you look at anybody, especially in the startup ecosystem, especially, you know, if you're talking about people who have moved to new places and taking on new adventures, that... You know, when it comes down to it, you know, what I've learned from this this whole adventure is that the people who've done the most interesting shit in their lives, you know, are in those times actually quite weird. Oh, yeah. And I think, you know, the message for any kid growing up today is that those that look at themselves and compare themselves, measure themselves to normality, to the mainstream and think, I'm different. I'm weird. I'm an outlier. I'm strange. I don't fit in here. That's a real issue for anybody growing up, because you have that self-doubt. Yet, you know, I find this with podcasts now when I do uh, conversations with people, I found the kind of stories I should have had when I was a kid, Um, you know, because I grew up in an industrial town like you, Portsmouth in the UK, where, you know, you didn't talk about these things, you didn't talk about going and see the world, because, you know, if you talked about that, people would say, why would you do that? Portsmouth's got everything, So as a kid, you feel weird. You feel, I'm not like everybody else. There's something wrong with me. And yet you start podcasting and you start joining the dots. You start talking to this guy and this guy and you realize, actually, you may be all in different countries and different backgrounds and different time zones and what have you but there's that commonality which you'd never knew existed before podcasting. I'm just wondering, Elliot, with yourself, I mean, how's it been for you, the the kind of conversations you have, whether it's in podcasting, whether it's in your work or your travels, whether you've sort of tapped into that, uh, you know, that sort of vibe that the more you travel, the more you get out of your comfort zone, the more you discover people who are outliers, and the more you discover that outliers are actually really, you know, they're the ones with the adventures that lie ahead of them.
0: I'd say that... um less as a podcaster, it does happen sometimes as a podcaster, but I think more as a, in the work that I've done as a consultant, I've worked with a lot of Chinese tech founders, uh, people from, you know, who, who a lot of times they, they came from very humble beginnings to, to start these, you know, billion dollar plus uh, tech companies. And I find that has been a, a huge inspiration for me because a lot of them are really weird too. So you you find, but you do see this this similar trend of, for example, curiosity that kind of runs through a lot of that. Uh, one thing that I've been working on and researching uh, lately is the the rise of of this guy named Zhang Peng, and Zhang Peng was a journalist for a state m- media business magazine back in the early two thousands, and he was got really into. Uh, silicon Valley like he was super interested in in silicon valley and 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 the the potential of technology and he he was weird I think but he became this kind of evangelist so what he would would do as he kind of became an editor and kind of grew up in in this uh, this company is he these other journalists that started working for him kind of gained that enthusiasm too uh, and he later went on to start a few other uh, Kind of either business magazines or or later on websites that focused on entrepreneurship in China. So he could, they kind of refer to him as kind of like an evangelist for China tech, <laughs> this this almost religious uh, kind of a missionary figure uh, who had this kind of infectious enthusiasm that he would share with a lot of the people around him. So. He, the the journalists that ended up working for him, many of them ended up being very successful and doing really great things with their lives, in in the entrepreneurial field. So, uh, there were a number of people that have gone on to be LPs at major venture capital firms. Um, if you look at Juhu, uh, so Juhu is the the Chinese knowledge sharing platform that's now worth 2.5 billion US dollars. It started off kind of as a clone of Quora, but now it's worth almost a billion dollars more than Quora is. Um, their founder used to be a journalist working for this guy Zhang Peng. Right? Um, if you look at Fang, who was the first employee in Xiaomi's IoT uh, area, he's one of the main architects behind the uh, MIUI user interface in their whole ecosystem. Uh, he also used to be a journalist under the sky. Uh, Hu Weiwei, who is the founder of Mobike, uh, the bike sharing company, uh, she was also a journalist under the sky. So you see that there is this this thread of curiosity and enthusiasm that stems from a similar place, and a lot of it comes from from journalism and from being you know just a curious person and um, and just interested in, in in wondering about the possibilities of of technology and entrepreneurship and and how that can change the world in one way or another. And I've been very inspired by that and very interested in that. And it's been probably the most rewarding thing of my time in China.
1: Mm. The great thing about talking to people like you, Elliot, is you're able to bring an awareness to those kind of conversations and those stories, like John Pong, for example, and give them their rightful place in the world so people know what the hell's going on. Because, you know, we know, we all know out there, listeners, that media is a biased world. It tends to tell a particular narrative. And if the media comes from the U.S., it tells a a U.S. narrative, right? That's how it is. And we have Jack Ma now on the international scene. And, you know, he's there, the funny face dude from China at Davos, you know, that, that is now a very positive face of China. He speaks very well. You know, he, he has, he's interesting, again, an English teacher from, from his background, communicates very well, um, says all the things that you want to hear out of Anybody who you know is a representative of the entrepreneurial world. He speaks like, you know He just comes to another business school in the US So we're very familiar with him and it's very positive PR for the Chinese tech startup ecosystem Yeah, that's just Jack Ma. So, you know John Pong for example Most people I imagine listening to this podcast will never have heard of and yet, you know Who else is out there? There are potentially 30 million startups in Asia you know, we're just talking about two. What about Pony Ponymar, Tencent's founder? Does anybody know what he looks like outside of China? I'm sure most people, if not 99% of people, could not pick him out of an identity parade, let alone have ever heard of him, right? Even though they may be familiar with Tencent and WeChat and so on. Yet, we're all familiar with Mark Zuckerberg and Steve Jobs, and Michael Dell these mythical figures that exist in the pantheon of western entrepreneurship does china have those equivalents or is you know are they just kind of you know biding their time at home are they celebrated back in china and you know are they just kind of waiting for their time to go big time globally or are they even you know are they even the right people for that will they I just wonder, I mean, obviously, Jack Ma, he may be an exception, but are there more people like him? Are there more homegrown entrepreneurs like him who could take it global, who could be a mythical figure in his own right up there with Steve Jobs? Um,
0: In China, they already are mythical figures in a lot of ways. But I I don't know. I mean, I, I think that they should be getting attention, and they should be getting attention for the right reasons. But I think especially in China right now, And looking at China's relationship with the rest of the world, particularly with the US, how things are changing within China, I think that one thing I am worried about is these big personalities and these big kind of weirdos who start these companies, because we are seeing that there is an increasing push. For the Communist Party to have a stronger hand in managing tech companies, which partly I think might be good because it does regulate some, but in other ways it really can take can hamper some uh, innovation and can hamper the independent decision-making abilities of some of these uh, these these leaders, and it does prevent them from being, from being able to go out and be themselves on a global stage, which makes them more likable. I mean, if you look at Jack Ma, I don't know what Jack Ma's current political standing is. And I think from what I understand um, from a number of sources, I think many people are concerned about what his future lies, what lies in the future when it comes to you know, the, the relationships with, with Beijing. Um, I don't, I, he stepped down as chairman, or he'll be stepping down as, as chairman. He's been more quiet lately. Um, I think right now we're seeing a lot more of, it, there's a bit more of a cult of personality around Xi Jinping, now, or at least not just a bit more, a lot more in China. And if something is seen as threatening that or moving in a different direction, I think that that is risky. But that is also something that I do think is really beautiful about China is that you have all these individuals that you know have these great ideas and want to go in a different direction. Um, but that's, that's something that is not, it, it does, it's not gonna work in China right now the way it would work in China 15 years ago or in a place like America either. So that's all a big question for me. But yeah, I, I wish, I think that there is, there's a couple sayings in the US diplomatic community about Japan and China, and one is something that a lot of Chinese people will say as well, and that is that a uh, hundred Japanese people are a dragon, one Japanese person is a mouse, a hundred Chinese people are mice, and one Chinese person is a dragon. And uh, another saying is that uh, American, America loves Japan, but Americans don't work well with, with Japanese. America doesn't like China, but Americans work really well with Chinese people. Right. So I think for both of these, what we see is that, you know, if you buy a Japanese product, it's very, it's, right now, you, it doesn't matter if you buy a Nissan or a Honda or a Toyota, there are certain expectations that you can have around a Japanese brand. You don't need to know who is in charge of the company. You don't need to know their entire philosophy um, because there is something about just the brand of, of Japan that... Uh, is reliable. Um, with China, it's not the same way, right? The, there's not the same kind of predictability. It's much more important to know who is the, the person behind the brand, who it, what is the philosophy that goes into the brand. That I think that is something that's far more important, and that's where the trust and credibility can come from. So it's so important for, as they go global, for Chinese Entrepreneurs and business leaders to go out like Jack Ma has and really build Their own personal brand and establish their own credibility on the world stage
1: Maybe one option another, you know uh, brand that is making it on the global stage from China is Xiaomi and I reference the recent podcast you did with John Russell on China Tech Investor about Xiaomi and I was sitting here in the studio talking to you now Elliot and across the desk from me is my Xiaomi phone you know after years of being an Android uh, Samsung and then before that an iPhone user I'm now buying Xiaomi phones because they just work you know mm-hmm. they are functional and reasonably priced and you know I don't buy the other stuff as well so for me that you know that's a major step forward in acceptance of a brand and if you look at the history of you know brands and tech brands going global whether it's the automotive or you know consumer electronics whether it's the japanese back in the 80s that's how it's, that's how they always got their f- head start is they built that you know sort of functional um product they won across the consumer with their reliability and cost performance and they, they then built that later into a a, a premium brand so you know it, Xiaomi seems to have done something right. I mean, it seems to have built out as a Chinese brand. It's you know, unlike simply, you know, some of its counterparts where it was just simply exporting en masse. It seems to have invested a lot in the the, the grassroots movements of building out, you know, the brand in different countries. What's going on with Xiaomi? Is Xiaomi an exception or do you think we'll see more brands like this emerging from China? You know, brands which are more than just being cheap. Yeah,
0: especially in places like India, I think they've done quite a good job at that. Um, I, there, I have a lot of questions about whether or not they can succeed. But I mean, I, I spoke. I mentioned earlier, Sai Yong Feng, who was who for a long time he was the VP of their uh, UI, their user interface. Um the. I would. I don't want to give all the credit to him, but uh, he is one of the main forces behind it. And it, yeah, he's he's a former journalist, and he's also somebody who. I mean after talking with him about kind of his his philosophy towards um, you know, towards you know user focused design and maybe want to buy a Xiaomi more. But with Xiaomi his English is also not very good. Uh, and a lot of the the Xiaomi's English Xiaomi's leaders' English is not very good. They're quite local still in how they um, you know how they think and, and they're not the most international company. Um, but they do have, I think a really good product and I think that they have a very, you know, sophisticated way of thinking about, um, m- you know, meeting the needs of, of their users. So, uh, I, I, don't, I'm the, the jury's still out in my mind about Xiaomi. So, but, so Graham, you said you bought a Xiaomi phone. Yeah, that's correct. Um, is this the first time that you have bought a smartphone that is not an iPhone?
1: Um, no.
0: What did you? What else did you have? You
1: bought. Outside of the iPhone, I've bought a Samsung, Huawei, um, mm. and well, I don't know if you count it. Go way back, but back to the days of the BlackBerry. That <laughs> doesn't count as a smartphone, right. but. Huh, I like,
0: guess so. Was it, was it a Huawei, Samsung, but but.
1: Yeah, premiums, Huawei Mate and okay. Samsung S. So, so
0: t- tell me about your experience with the Huawei. Because Huawei, I mean, they're a very popular smartphone brand. They're also a Chinese brand. But tell me about the difference with your experience from uh, Huawei and a Xiaomi.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. Huawei, from just from my personal experience, appears that it wants to be more of a high end phone. Therefore, it's a higher ticket price. And yet, Xiaomi a lot more functional and um I mean there's a lot of Xiaomi uh, I don't know what your thoughts are on this which are out there like the community building stuff which you know they, they seem to have you know this sort of very functional brand yet be trying to position themselves as a very cool brand at the same time so I'm not quite sure about that but simply as a user um, my, you know, I'm looking at my Xiaomi phone now with a cracked screen and it still works. It's hanging in there, right? Um, yeah, Huawei I owned for just over a year and I think on month 13 it broke and you know some the motherboard died or something like that and it just you know for the, the What level of, I mean for the, the price of that phone it shouldn't break so easily it reminds me of the old days of the Blackberries. So I'm hanging, I'm maybe, you know, my demographics are slightly different to your average mobile phone user. I don't define myself in terms of status by the phone that I own. So for me, functionality is probably a lot more important than significance from a phone. And therefore, for me, Xiaomi wins over Huawei, purely in terms of those criteria.
0: And I, I think, the concept with, with Xiaomi there is a big gap between what they want to do and what they are able to do um so my questions are far more about their execution of their strategy rather than the strategy itself i like the idea i like i like you know the 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 big picture of what Xiaomi wants to do i don't know if i trust their ability to execute it that's my big question with them um But I think that the area they're going into, you—you mentioned the status with with iPhone, right? Now Apple is milking that right now. So every time they come out with a new phone, it's cheaper for them to make it, but the you know the, the cost for production keep going down, but the cost of that the price of that iPhone keeps going up. So they're, they're doing what I would consider to be less and less innovation and more milking their, their status as a luxury brand. Uh, so I think that there is room, and the, the, the people who are coming online right now, they're not going to buy an iPhone. They want something cheaper. I think that there is room for a company like Xiaomi to establish itself. Uh, on the lower end, or the middle end, or the middle tier, uh, and actually have a real, a, a strong you know, user focus, user experience, and, and, a, and a legitimate brand name that people can have some loyalty to. And if they can successfully do that, I think that that you know that, that that's an impressive thing, and it's an admirable thing, and I think it's something that um, that there's room for, and that there's need for.
1: There's this key theme that's emerging over the last few years, Elliot, and that's about China as a service. And we've seen China emerge in the last 20 years from being all about where it began with cheap T-shirts and sneakers. Then moving into, you know, technological production and now at the high end of technology, able to produce and turn out smartphones better than the rest of the world. And obviously, we all know that iPhones are made in China. Even their own brands now are able to compete on the same footing as Apple. So when it comes to technology, we've seen China advance. Yet, what I'm curious about is your thoughts on what about China outside of technology? What about China that can provide services in healthcare for example even though it may be very much tech driven but i'm talking about outside of you know consumer electronics does you know are there brands emerging now out of china that can go global because we're at a stage now where you know the the chinese domestic market is becoming saturated so i imagine if you're talking about investment trends investors want to know can this brands succeed outside of China, because that's where the outsized returns now lie. So will we see that in Chinese brands going global in lifestyle or fashion or even retail, for example?
0: I don't know. Um, I think that there are some ways where, so if we think about fashion brands, I don't see a Chinese fashion brand that can really be a world beater right now. But, I think ways in which tech can be integrated with lifestyle, I think is very, there's a lot of potential, particularly in places like Southeast Asia. So, and I mentioned I'm in Bangkok right now, um, Bangkok, or Southeast Asia, there's 600 million people in Southeast Asia, and last year, the internet economy, meaning e-commerce, uh, ride-sharing or mobility, uh, mobile payments, and, um, and social media made up or was about a $50 billion economy. It, by 2025, it's expected to be a $200 billion economy. So we're seeing this period of rapid growth uh, in the internet space, particularly the mobile internet, uh, the consumer-facing internet in Southeast Asia. And there is a lot of space for Chinese companies to really establish their brands. So, in in Bangkok, what's happening right now is uh, JD, so Jingdong, the Chinese China's number two e-commerce company, has recently set up a, a joint venture with Central Group, which is one of Thailand's most and uh, kind of well-known uh, re- real estate and retail uh, conglomerates, and. They are estab- trying to establish the same a similar brand in Thailand as they have in China, which is to be known for their higher end goods, luxury goods, um, and uh, you know uh, more consumer technology. So things like um, like you know, like smartphones, for example. Um, so and to get the trust of people to be willing to buy to make such such expensive purchases online. Um, they've succeeded at doing that in China and we'll Mm. see if they can succeed at doing that in Thailand. If they can, a lot of this e-commerce lifestyle that we see, you know, the Double Eleven, the singles day, that is a brand that I think Mm. uh, can go from China to the rest of the world. Mm. Uh, And I would consider that to be a lifestyle brand, to be honest with you.
1: We're entering a new phase, aren't we? It's a phase where this is no longer about just china but it's about china and the world and its place in the world and how those brands can go global if you look at the latest data you know asia now does more trade with itself than it does with the rest of the world and you have you know the growing asian middle classes two thirds of the world's middle classes will be living in asia by 2030 so it sets up this narrative where for you know chinese brands the the next step is about asia and how it these brands do well in asia and the kind of people we need to understand that shift are people like yourself elliot who aren't specialists in one particular area you know you're not a specialist in specifically southeast asia or even china for that matter because you know you have that breadth of experience outside there will always be somebody who knows a little bit more about china than you do yet what you have is the ability and what we need is for somebody to join the dots. So how does China intersect with Thailand? How does China intersect with Singapore? How does this all come together? You know, how how does China and Alibaba and Lazada all work together? Those kind of questions require that, you know, joining of the dots, that vantage point, which is not, Head down within that ecosystem or that vertical sector, and I think that's the next step in understanding the Asian tech ecosystem. Is how does all that interplay come together?
0: Yeah, I mean it's it's really intersectionality with all this stuff. So it's I, I am the kind of person who has more is more into the breadth of knowledge than the depth of knowledge. So I'm interested in everything, and I, I think that that's really cool. Looking at I mean, looking at China in the world, right? So I, I have a pretty strong depth of knowledge in China, but I'm also really interested in everything else. So looking at the intersection of, okay, uh, Chinese e-commerce and Southeast Asia, or uh, Chinese fintech and um, you know, and and uh, uh, Malaysian small businesses, right? <laughs> things like that, where um, you know you can you can take these things that you know i maybe become familiar with while i'm in china and all of a sudden you know you can you it's like a chemical reaction you could see okay you can play around with it you can say okay well what would this concept uh, do if we applied it to this situation or this context um, and it's something that you know it's really just about like playing with ideas and um, and i mean that that's what innovation is about it's what entrepreneurship is about um and and that's what you know that's what i'm into so um that that's where i find joy i think and where i find purpose in life is just you know looking at this kind of stuff and you know just just seeing what the the chemical reactions of the world are uh, as we as we move forward in the 21st century.
1: All right, Elliot. Let's talk about joy and purpose then. As a podcaster or somebody who's been on that journey for some time now, how do you deal with the obvious, um, and you know, this happens to everybody. The objections that you get about being a podcaster, are like you know, we Asians, we don't listen to podcasts, or you know, podcasting. Why are you doing that? There's no money to be made in it, or you know, I don't have time for for podcasting. This is what I hear. It's like you know, make make your podcast shorter, Elliot. You know, give me the ten minute version of your podcast. <laughs> you know, we're too busy. So, you know, how do you deal with that? Because if you are indulging in podcasts which are 45 minutes, an hour and a half, in some cases two hours, right? How do you justify that?
0: Um, if you're podcasting, like, as a business model, you should probably give up. <laughs> it's Because it, it's not something that's going to make a lot of money. It's not it, – it, you have to, in my experience, you have to do it for – the enjoyment of it itself, I think. So so Graham, you seem like, you're a very interesting person, right? I would like to have a conversation with you, but what other excuse would I have to have to get an hour long conversation with you? (laughs) You know, right? (laughs) So this this gives me an opportunity to talk to interesting people uh, about interesting topics, Um, and other people can listen along too. And so it's, that's the way that I look at it. Um, I do it because it's a hobby I enjoy and it's a way to meet people. Uh, So, and if something comes out of it later on, then great, that's awesome. But that's not why I'm doing it. Um, And, and, and I'm also a big fan of podcasts. I listen to podcasts all the time. Um, So especially when it comes to areas like China, so and China Tech. So I I was interested in it. And I was like, why don't we just start it? And you know, I, I was, I thought I would want to listen to a podcast like that. So, you know, it's a way to meet people. It's a way to have fun conversations. So that's the way that I think about it. Not as some, you know, you know entrepreneurial money-making venture or anything like that. It's just, it's an opportunity to do something that I like.
1: Yes. So, You know, the takeaway really being is that the real money in podcasting, I believe, is in the upsell. If you win people's trust and attentions, you can do a lot with that. You make a lot more money out of that than you will out of trying to monetize a podcast specifically. So how about yourself in terms of what it's done for you? How do you feel your journey of podcasting has impacted, for example, your your speaking skills, your interviewing skills, your conversation skills, your writing skills, and so on. Because, you know, I think that's a part of podcasting, which is the unknown for a lot of people. They go in thinking they're just going to have the interview of people, but actually it turns out to be conversations where you can go quite deep with people. You can touch on subjects which you could normally not touch on. And you could ask questions you could normally not ask. And, you know, you could say things... Or give people a platform to say things they couldn't normally say, and they certainly wouldn't say it at a conference, right so there's a bit of magic there in podcasting, which I think is unknown for um, podcast hosts when they go into it, is that you know they don't realize what this can do for them,
0: yeah, exactly, so you have to make sure that you're not saying anything that's uh that you know might be you know unconsciously offensive to people <laughs> so it is I think it's important to. You have to think about the words that you use a lot more, I think, and, you know, really think about your your thought structure, which is also, it's like writing, it's very helpful. You, know, you can't just babble on. You have to really put your words together and put your thoughts together and, and make it a, an organized, coherent uh, message. So I, I think that that's also very helpful for me as a speaker, as a communicator. So I'm I'm definitely not perfect at this. If listeners will know that I'm doing my ums and as way more than I should. <laughs> but but <it's, laughs>
1: well, that makes you more authentic. Yeah, you know, I think that's the human element we want from a podcast. And you know, you're not coming with PR handlers who stop the tape and say you can't ask Elliot that question. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So that's what we look for on a podcast, mm-hmm. that it's unedited, it's raw, it's real. You know, why edit it down and take out all the mistakes and all the human foibles and, you know, all the rambles that go off piste a little bit? Because, you know, once you take all of that out, then all that's left is exactly what I can get on the website.
0: Yes, exactly. And then and in addition to that, it's you find the right people. It's you know, I I'm, we may have a couple hundred or a thousand or so listeners or whatever, but it's you end up those listeners are, are, are higher quality and they'll they'll read when I started writing about a year and a half ago was when I started doing more journalism more and working more as a columnist. Uh, I'd have people contact me and be like, oh, this this was so resonant with me and, and you know what you mentioned in that article, it just it was so meaningful to me. You know, it, it changed my day, it made me so happy or whatever. Um and that, that made me feel better, but also it was like, oh well why is this in, is this important to this person? Tell me more about what you do. Right? And and then I so I've made so many different friends that way. You know, you build, like mentioned Seth Godin, you build your tribe and you, you build these mm. other, you find the other weirdos who, yeah. you know, might want to work with you and who might want to be your friend. And It's great.
1: Love it. What a great place to end the podcast, Elliot. That's Elliot Zagman, everybody, co-host of China Tech Investor. Before I let you go, Elliot, let's do the shout out. Let's give people the link where people can find out more about you and your story, your journey and the podcast.
0: So it's the, you can search the China Tech Investor Podcast. It is powered by technode.com. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter at Elliot Zagman. That's E-L-L-I-O-T-T-Z-A-A-G-M-A-N. You can search me on LinkedIn. Uh, you can find the, the – just search China Tech Investor wherever you get your podcast. So that's on iTunes or wherever. And, uh, yeah, I think that that should be okay.
1: Go check it out. And if you're a regular listener and you enjoy the content, leave a review, of course.
0: Five stars, Graham. Five stars. Graham. Oh, uh, five stars. Well,
1: yeah, Elliot, only five stars. We don't, yeah, exactly. Go leave a review. It helps other people discover the podcast as well. You know, um, mm-hmm. they've got some great work out there, some great content. And, you know, if you're interested in China, Chinese brands, understanding the Chinese tech ecosystem a little bit better, then go and check out China Tech Investor. And it's fun as well. It's a great podcast to, you know, it's it's easy listening. It's enjoyable. Whether or not you're interested in investment, you actually can get into the vibe of, you know, people sitting around a table and talking about what they're really passionate about. So, Elliot, it's great. Come back on the podcast as well. Come back on ATP and share your journey with us. We'd love that. Sounds so. good. You know, give us an update on what's going on. That's Elliot Zagman, everybody. Elliot, thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at ATP.show.